You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We will be in 2 Corinthians again. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look into your word and to hear from you. It is our sustenance every day that we can come to you for truth. We know that you never will disappoint. You will always take care of those that are yours. And so as your sheep, we look to you this morning for guidance, for correction, for instruction, for reproof, and for encouragement. We trust, Lord, that our study this morning will bring an even greater devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we will give ourselves willingly to obedience to your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would oversee this this morning and uh, through the entire worship service that we might honor you and lift you up and bring you glory and, incur- and, and enjoyment, Lord. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 8. We'll read the whole chapter. It's been a while, so I'm going to be with you for two weeks, and then Jess will be beginning this, an exposition of 2 Samuel. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. <clears throat> For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Consequently, we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as, a, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich." And I give my opinion in this matter, for this, is, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it, but now finish doing it also, that just as there was a readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. This, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want, that their abundance may also become a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being self, being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. And we have sent along with him the brother, the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread throughout all the churches. And not only this, 
but he also has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness, taking no precaution that no one should discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of this great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. So this morning, as we're going to begin to look more at this, this prompting Paul has for the Corinthian church to participate in the gift to the Corinthian, to the Jerusalem church, even amidst the great difficulties that the churches were facing at this time, we wonder, you know, did, did the Corinthian church actually come around? Did they actually do as Paul asked? Did they actually meet the goal of giving to the Jerusalem church? Well, there's a little hint in uh, verse 20, Paul is talking about, and we won't get that far today, but just so you know, I'm kind of giving you the end of the chapter here. <laughs> yeah, Don't you hate it when someone tells you how the book turns out before you get to read it? The Corinthians gave a generous gift, Paul says, and that he wanted to make certain that they were appropriate in how they administered it. So when we get to that, we'll see how this all played out. There's a chronology we're gonna, we might be able to go through today if we get to it. The last time I was with you, we, we opened the chapter and we got through verse 4. Um, remember that we were dealing, Paul was dealing with encouraging the Corinthians by reminding them or, or apprising them, letting them know about how the Macedonian churches had participated in the gift to the Jerusalem saints, even though they were in extreme poverty. Um, and, and so Paul, it, one of the things that must come out of this for us, for all the progeny, if you will, of the church for all time, is that God is not so much concerned with the amount as with the heart and with the cheerfulness. What kind of a giver does he love? A rich one? A cheerful one. And don't we all? Don't we all love a cheerful giver? It's, it's, a, it's a great precedent. But at any rate, so God is going to, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit through Paul, I mean, is going to communicate to the Corinthians their part in this. So Paul says, in, in just really quickly recapping, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which had been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a greater deal of affliction, their, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberty. So it was their joy in Christ that caused their liberality to overflow to the other churches in Jerusalem. And again, this is Gentiles giving to Jews back in a day when that was relatively unheard of, if not completely unheard of. There was such a separation along, along those kind of lines. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. They begged Paul to be able to be involved in supporting the Jerusalem saints. So we come to verse 5. And this, not as we had expected, Paul says, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. <laughs> Yeah, 
get ahead a little bit here. Here we see that the giving of the Macedonians, what they did was understood by them to be an act of worship. And thus it should be understood that giving everything of our obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed an act of worship, an act of obedience and love towards Christ. And in fact, this is true. Obedience to God is worship of God. In the Old Testament, one of the most significant portions of worship was the sacrifice that the priests gave in worship to Jehovah, to, to Jehovah God. And so in 1 Samuel 15, we, we see this. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. This is Saul talking to Samuel. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, from the Amalekites, and for the people spared, and the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have other, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, "Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord has said to me last night." And he said to him, "Speak." Samuel said, "Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission." And said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of, Am of, Am of Amalek, Amalek, Amalek. And have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took some of the, the people took some of the spoil and sheep and oxen and the choices of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, "Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of lambs." For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Don't we often have stories about how we obeyed when we know we didn't? But we did this, and we did this, and we followed this, and we, and we took care of this. But the thing that was important to God, the most important aspect, the obedience to him, was left off by Saul. So his kingship was stripped from him. And so the, the Macedonians were, were obeying God in giving, even though they could not. They didn't, have the, they didn't have the resources that Saul did, and yet they gave. They obeyed. They didn't have the ability that Saul did, and yet they did. They obeyed. They gave. So the first order of business for the Macedonians, for them, was to give themselves to the Lord. The idea of the word translated first is not first in time, but first in priority. So you might say, he might have said, but more importantly, the Macedonians gave themselves to the Lord. First, they gave themselves to the Lord. They knew that before they could give money or anything else, they must first continually give themselves to the Lord in response to their salvation and in love to Him. And that is the truth all the way down through history. What the Lord wants is the heart of the believer, wants His devotion, her devotion. If you have nothing but you obey 
everything he commands. You've given him everything of yourself, like the widow who gave her might. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of, that the will of God, you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so by obedience, we prove to the world that the will of God is good. It's acceptable. Now the scripture says it's good. They're not reading it. They're looking at you. They're looking at me. And when we are obedient to God's word, we prove to the world that his will is good and acceptable and perfect. So the given Macedonians gave financial support, but they also gave themselves. Now, I don't really know all that that meant. I, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, sort all that out other than just what it says. I'm thinking some of them might have gone to Jerusalem. Um, there was probably a church meeting. This is all speculation. Please don't build any doctrines on this. <laughs> there might have been some meetings. There might have been some get-togethers where they, they, some of the giving was to send one of their own to Jerusalem to see if they could help. Maybe people needed homes built. I don't know all that was going on. I just know it was a terrible time of famine and financial difficulty. And so they gave themselves. And when you give yourselves, you get pretty creative. God gives you pretty good creativity. Once you open it up the possibilities by saying, Lord, whatever you want to do, you can do through me. Once you do that, well, now God can use you in creative ways. And I don't know what all those were. Some of them were probably financial. Some of them were probably physical. They went to Jerusalem. They helped. They did whatever was necessary to help bring help to the Jerusalem church. <laughs> It was understood that at salvation, the grateful saint gives themselves back to the Lord. But in this particular case, they put themselves under the leadership of Paul, whether to travel with him or to participate in the collection joyfully and bring him the funds that he would take to Jerusalem is not clear. But either one or probably both is what suffices here. All of this was done by the will of God. That is, they understood from their study of Scripture that obedience and giving go hand in hand. In their day, as well as in the Corinthian day, as well as in the days of Samuel, and as well as in the days of today, as in today. Dedication and the resulting application of that dedication to helping others was part and parcel of the delight of being a believer. And I've got to say, um, I've had people help me, and it was clear to me they loved doing it. It's just so weird. <laughs> no, it's not. It's remarkably wonderful when someone does something for you and you know that they are just getting a boost out of it. They like it. They enjoy it. That's the heart of a, of a giving believer who has been, that has been transformed by the hand of God into something that can give the agape giving that God wants us to give to one another. And so, like I say, I don't know what all happened here, but these Macedonians went above and beyond, above and beyond their ability. They pooled their resources. They gave some of it in financial help to Paul. And again, I think some of them might have gone to Jerusalem. It's going to be exciting all of it, to find out all of this. This is just, these are books that aren't in here and they don't need to be in the scripture or, or God would have put them there. But I'm still nosy. I want to know. I think it's going to be really interesting. Any questions or comments about verse 5? They gave themselves. 
verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete you, complete in you this gracious work as well. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2 says, Paul says, I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Apparently, about a year before, um, Titus had encouraged the Corinthian church to take up the task of giving to Jerusalem. As mentioned before, they probably dropped that project. I hate to call it a project, but that's the only word that comes to mind right now. That mission, that ministry. They probably dropped that ministry in light of the issues that Corinth had, had been having with Paul. Um, but now those issues being for the most part, if not all, resolved, Paul is urging Titus and the Corinthians by reminding them of their earlier zeal to take that task up again. This is remarkable in that it, this comes on the heels of Titus. Remember what happened here. What did Titus just deliver to the Corinthian church? Not just, but that they had sent an, an emissary to him. The severe letter. The one that said, I, I don't know what it said, but basically it said, knock it off. You guys are fouling up, knock it off. And they delivered that letter, and that was in this time frame wherein Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to take up the task they had dropped, probably unspoken because of their animosity towards him. And then he wrote the severe letter, pick that task back up. But God was in this, so the, the uh, irritation, the anger, all of that was swept aside, and they took it back up. They're going to take it back up. So this is remarkable. Okay, so they had repented. The Corinthian church had repented over, you know, the great, the great preponderance of them, as we saw earlier, and were therefore ready to take up this task. Upon a believer recognizing that God has convicted him of sin, repenting and begin moving in obedience, God can now give new tasks, can give new, can give new help, and can give new tasks. Um, the Corinthians were ready to do what Paul had asked. And I love the way he, just, he talks about knowing that they will do what's right. So any questions or, or comments on verse 6? Complete in you this gracious, this beautiful work as well. Verse 7, but, now he's talking to the Corinthians. Remember, from our, for those of you that were here for studying, for the study in 1 Corinthians, they thought they were pretty special people. They were pretty wise. They had lots of gifts. They were the top of the heap. If you want to see what a Christian really is, take a look at us, they said. Paul had to deal with that. <laughs> but... The fact was, that church was a rich church in gifts and in abilities. And Paul acknowledges that in verse 7. He says, but just as you abound, and I don't believe he's being sarcastic, just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. So he's challenging them because of their giftedness as a church, because of the abilities and the love that existed in that church in Corinth, even amongst their difficulties. Is there any perfect church? There was one here until I came. I don't know if you all knew that. Yeah, but there really isn't. But Paul says they abounded in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge. 
So there might be a bit of irony here that Paul encourages the gifted church, for that is what they thought of themselves previously. Now he's talking to a church that has repented. And everybody knows they've repented. And he says, he, he challenges them not to fall behind in giving. You've got all these other marvelous attributes in the church. So it's not wrong to, to acknowledge the good that happens in a body and in individuals. You don't want to lather it on too thick because then they won't be able to get out the door. But it, it's a good idea, especially when you're reminding someone of their past decision to do something. And we're going to talk about um, finishing the course, finishing something that you took up. So he acknowledges that they abound in many areas. And so he challenges in them on that basis, that they abound in many areas, to abound in giving. They were not in the financial straits, as far as we know, that the churches of Macedonia were in, and thus they should be able to accomplish this relatively easily. Now, that's a general statement. Within this body right here, there are going to be people who, if they've heard of a need, it might be that they don't have another meal in order to, to sacrifice for that need. And there are folks who it wouldn't be that difficult. Either way, has God moved your heart to do it? Be cheerful and give. That's what was Paul is inspiring here. They were accomplished in their trust in the Lord, faith. Their doctrine, which is the word translated utterance, so they were accomplished in faith, they were accomplished in doctrine, and they were... Um, they had abounded in knowledge, which is the ability to apply doctrine to life, and they abounded in earnestness. They were a zealous church. They were earnest about what they did. That is, they had a zeal for the Lord that knew no bounds. In this they could, through the love that helped, through the love that they had, help meet the need in Jerusalem. The word for abound both times describes an overabundance. It's the cup that someone you've hold it, you're holding it under the faucet, the tap, and it just fills over and over and it's running down the sink. That's, the that's what it's talking about, an overabundance. It comes from the idea of meeting a certain fixed measure and then having an abundance left over. So they have, they have an abundance of earnestness. They, ha they have great earnestness. So he says, and in the love we inspired in you. Now, do you think the severe letter inspired love in the Corinthian church? I think it did. I think it did. I think a person who is truly owned by the Holy Spirit, when he is confronted with his sin and he recognizes that it's such, he sees that as the love of God. He may, in time, see it as the love of the believer that confronted him. Maybe not at the time, but it takes courage to confront someone who's, who's missing the mark doesn't it? Especially if you love them dearly. What is it going to do to my relationship? And so, so the severe letter inspired them to do this, this gracious work. I can't see it any other way. There's a connection here to the repentance of this church, of the individuals in this church, and now once they've repented, what can we do? Tell us what to do. Here I am, Lord. Send me. That's what was going on. And so the Corinthian church is going to help. Any, any comments? Or, that's, a, that's an exciting verse to me. Abound in this gracious work. Overflow. I'm not speaking this as a command. Neither am I. Cornell is not commanding. 
I don't get to do that at all. But as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. One of the fundamental principles of giving in the church is that it is not commanded. If you belong to a body that commands you to give, get out. That's not the, that's not the responsibility of the leadership. I'm getting kind of excited. I'll calm right down for a minute or two. It is not commanded. It is a voluntary love response to the God of the universe. And it is directed only by the giver, by you. It's directed by the individual. Study scripture, understand your situation, understand the situation of those in need, and then go to God for what you can or cannot do. And if you're not that person at that time, that's okay too. Your time's coming. Your good time's coming. So, where did I go here? Giving is not only the proof of love, but it is certainly one of the proofs of love. Often, great swelling words of self-aggrandizement are spoken by people. But what tells us the true story is what they do. Show me by your works, James said. Show me your faith by your works. The challenge Paul gave the Corinthians was to give out of the sincerity of their love, not because they felt guilty, not because they felt bad, but because love motivated them. Not as an obligation, but as a desire to help. Just because someone feels that they are compassionate does not make it so. Today is a day of feelings. I mean, I hear so many people, you ask them a question about a fact, and they say, well, I feel that that... Eh, stop, back up, let's get word of the feel word. I don't, you know, I'm not saying this categorically, but it's often not important what you feel. It's what are you doing? What have you done? And so Paul is challenging the Corinthians. So not as an obligation, not, just because someone feels they are compassionate does not make it so their actions tell the story. We know, you know who's compassionate because you've seen people exercise compassion towards you. They, you don't have to So now, can you tell me what that was you just did to me was? Was that, could I call that compassion? You don't have to do that. You know what it was. When someone helps you, takes care of you, challenges you, those are things that God wants them to do in your life. So I'm not speaking this as a command, Paul says. It's not an obligation, but prove the earnestness of your love. Prove the sincerity of your love by doing this. Any questions or comments about verse 8? Verse 9. For you know, and this, here it is, who was the most compassionate? the most giving, the most loving, Christ himself. And Paul brings it back to that. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and by the way, that word rich in the same sentence as the word, the Lord, as the word Christ, the name Christ, doesn't do justice. But we have, we have what we have. We have language. Christ was an immense unmeasurably, immensely rich when he was at the right hand of the Father, when he was in heaven prior to his uh, coming to the earth to save us. So, finish the verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Here we have the greatest example in all of history 
of one who puts shoe leather to his love, if you will. Paul reminds the Corinthians, as he is working through this section on giving, of the greatest giver of all. He uses the full title, by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ, his deity, his humanity, and his, love, his, his power. The Lord Jesus Christ, all three. And he does that to give impetus to what he is saying. The sovereign God of the universe, who was wealthy became beyond all understanding, became a pauper, as the word is translated. And he did it, Paul says, for the sake of the Corinthians. Of course, in the greater sense, he did it for everyone who trusts him, who he has elected to salvation. But salvation is personal and individual. It's not a corporate thing. And Paul is reminding these very folks that the grace of Christ... The love of Christ, which caused him to step down from heaven into this world to save the lost, saved them. It's good to be reminded of that, is it not? Peter said, I'm not ashamed to remind you of the basics. That's not exactly the word he used, but it'll do for this morning. I'm, it's, I'm not ashamed to remind you of the, of the former things, the basics. And he did it, Paul says, for, the, for, the, for everyone. <laughs> um. This verse is, as one commentator said, he said this. This verse is a Christological gem of incalculable, incalculable value, a many-faceted diamond that far outshines shines all the other jewels around it. The wonder of this verse is captivating. Its vast scope, profundity, and impact transcend the simplicity of the 21 Greek words that comprise it. Its truth is not couched in technical theological language. Its words are not complex or confusing. And though its message may be grasped in one reading, the truth it contains may not be fully comprehended throughout eternity. That was John MacArthur in his um, 2 Corinthians commentary. Incredible verse. We don't, we're not going to get it here if you will. But we will, when we, are, when we know as we are known, it says in 2, 1 Corinthians 13. This verse is not telling the followers of Christ that they must be poor. It's not telling them that. It's not saying go become a monk. They're not to be, it's not telling them to become poor, indigent paupers who must depend on handouts. Paul is using comparison to show just how much love can drive someone to do something for someone else. He is showing that true love, agape love, the love that God showed towards us, drives one to provide for the needs of other when one is able to do so. Paul is showing that the Macedonians gave when they were poor, and Christ gave when he was rich or wealthy. Most of us fall somewhere in between that. The point is the poor should give when God calls them to, and the rich should give when God calls them to. In Corinth, there would have been both. Paul was calling on all of them to give to the Jerusalem church. Regarding the economic status of Jesus, by the way, should there be any questions, um, uh, Colin Cruz in his New Testament commentary explains it this way. He said, as far as Jesus' experience is concerned, it is true that Luke highlights the lowly circumstances of his birth. But this is not an indication of the poverty of the Holy Family, but rather of the overcrowded conditions in Bethlehem and at the time of the census. The offering that Mary made for her purification was that permitted to those who could not afford a lamb. <laughs> and this indicates the family was not well off. Jesus was known as the carpenter, the son of Mary. And as a craftsman, 
he would not be numbered among the abject poor. During his Galilean ministry, he did remind a would-be disciple that the foxes have holes and the birds have the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. However, this must not be taken to mean that as an itinerant preacher, Jesus was continually in dire economic circumstances. The indications are that the cost of Jesus' itinerant ministry and the support for his followers were provided by a number of well-off sympathizers who had been the recipients of his healing ministry. In addition, it was a custom among the Jews to provide hospitality for traveling preachers, and Jesus enjoyed such hospitality at a number of homes, and especially at that of Mary and Martha. We all know that story. On the evidence then, Jesus was no poorer than most first century Palestinian Jews and better off than some, those that were reduced to beggary. Indeed, Jesus, indeed, Jesus and his band of disciples had sufficient money to be able to provide help for those worse off than themselves. And then there are the scriptures if you want to write them down. So the second point about this verse is that it is not indicating that the followers of Christ will be materially rich. If you send $5 to me, I'll sweat on a handkerchief and send it back to you. And I'll laugh while I'm flying my Learjet about how dumb you were. That's not what I'm talking about. The second point is not that indicate that the followers of Christ will be materially rich. It's not going to be the condition of every Christian that they'll be a millionaire, that they'll be rich. It's not what the scripture is teaching. The clear juxtaposition of the spiritual wealth that Christ had and that he left behind compared with the spiritual poverty that exists on the earth since the fall and the exchange that occurs when one trusts Christ for salvation is what Paul has in mind here. You and I went from abject spiritual poverty and death, eternal death, to wealth beyond measure, spiritually. It can't be compared. We are at the right hand of God. We are, we are with Christ. We are his heirs. Do you know what it's like to be the heir to a quintillionaire? I didn't make that number up. That's the next one after trillion. I just wanted it to be bigger than trillion. We use trillion a lot nowadays. When we hit a quintillion, you'll know it's over. Yes? So bad now, like it was better early. The good old days. And I'm curious, is that biblically sound? No. The depravity of man has been total since one billionth of a second after his fall. Period. That was, that was my refrain since day one. Since day one. And since second one. Now, granted, men figure out new ways to, to maximize their depravity, but men, the spiritual poverty that, that exists that Paul is talking about existed the minute the first, the first couple disobeyed God. Yes? And we have more access to news worldwide. And so we meddle in things that don't belong to us. And it's like taking a dog by the ears, by the way. I really don't have the business knowing what's going on in Cleveland. They need to take care of it. I should take care of what's happening here. And that muddles things up so badly. And it convinces us that things are worse. But what happens is they're worse because we are exposed to it more. So today in New York, now it is legal for you to kill a baby that survived an abortion. That's no different than feeding it to Chemosh 
in a, putting it on the blazing hot arms of a brass statue that were red hot. And I won't say any more because it makes me sick to my stomach. We haven't changed. We've just been able to explain it and uh, transmit it around the world more. Um, let me get Brian, and then I'll get back to you, Brian. And then in John chapter 1, men seek darkness. Men seek darkness. Know that depravity hasn't changed. Just the ability to find out about it has, which, like I say, I think that muddles things up for us an awful lot. We end up being thrust into things that happen that we have no business being involved with. So, well, as in the days of Noah was just before what happened. The flood. Yeah. So the things that will be different, people will know it's God, and they'll shake their fists at him and pull, say, pull the mountains down on us. So there'll be, there'll be a, a, a different, maybe a different re reaction, but the sin is just as bad now as it will be in those days. But it'll be just before the end, the return. And I, I think that it's going to be somewhat evident that when it actually, I mean, everybody talks, people have been predicting the world's going to end for as long as there's been a world. And I mean, <laughs> I remember when Y2K happened, you know what I stocked up on? Yeah, I, I knew they kind of had it figured out, but just in case, I had enough toilet paper for two years, man. Yeah. But I didn't, you know, hey, okay. I guess what I would say there is that what, if you study first century Rome, you will find feminism, the same things that you'll find essential socialism and Nazism. You'll find the very same things. Blonde women were considered the, the epitome in first century Rome. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm okay with that, but I have one. But um, I guess the point is, is that we're just not aware of everything that's going on everywhere. And so when we see a horrifyingly depraved thing, we think it's never been like that. It's been like that forever. Parents, pardon me, all down through history, there have been horrifying examples of man's depravity that get recycled again and again, and it might have been done with a knife, now it's done with a car or dropping a piano out of a second story window or whatever. But so the, the uh, accomplishment of the depravity may be different, but the depravity and the lack of morals, I truly believe, have been the same from the second after the biting of the apple, if you will. Jim. So if, and I'm not postulating this completely, that, that this is kind of a, an anecdote or a uh, metaphor that you can, might be able to grab, if the church kind of sets the standard for morality, and then mankind lags down here. When the church becomes immoral, then man is authorized to become more immoral. Now, it's not that he's doing things worse than they were done 10 centuries ago, five centuries ago, but it's, it's almost like there's cycles. I don't know how else to explain it. There's like, it's like the weather cycles we have. There are cycles of depravity that happen. Yes, Peter. So throughout time and throughout different countries, there are these cycles where the, the powers that be, if you will, that restrain evil become less. And then something happens in, in the 1840s America, 1740s, the Great Awakening happened. And it happened with a preacher who is arguably one of the smartest men the planet's ever produced, preaching to the back wall of a church. He'd preached this message a number of times, sinners in the hands of an angry God. It was not a, it was not a church building sermon he would have struck out at evangelistic communities today. He read it, and God started a revival.
It's at the hand of God. We may be in the end times. I ain't one of these that predict because we've been in the end times for 2,000 years as far as I'm concerned. But as Peter has said, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. We're not going to get through the rest of this. That's okay. This has been good. Yes, yes, there's depravity. But there's sparkling, glorious obedience in various and sundry places throughout this world that we should be delighted about, as Paul was. He said, you guys excelled in doctrine, in earnestness, and, and he's calling them. So what, as Peter has just said, what is that calling us to do in, a, in an era of horrible depravity? To shine more. To bring the word of God to more. To bless the world with what we can do. And don't, uh, don't think you can't do something. You're a believer. The Holy Spirit of the universe inhabits your heart. Can he do something? He spoke this into existence. And we don't have a time number small enough to communicate how, how fast that happened. Um, so let's be obedient. Let's be, and be excited about the things that are going on and concerned as well about the depravity. But uh, this is going to be the worst finish I've ever had. I don't even know where I'm at. Okay, we're over here. All you need to do is to respond to the commands of God in Scripture and to the work of His Holy Spirit in your heart. And you can be a, depra a, a depravity stopper, if you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are at work to will and to work of your good pleasure in every believer here. And that that is a force not to be sniffed at. The Holy Spirit is at work, and as long as he is, as long as it is day, we want to be those people who are obedient to you, bringing help to those who need help, the word of God to those who need the word of God. Well, everybody needs that, so to everyone. The message of salvation to those who need it, encouragement to those who need it. Father, you know what the needs are. Direct us, and we want to be the obedient ones who bring delight to your heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.